Good morning. I'll try to stand still this time. All right. Today's scripture is Acts 19, 1 through 7. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. All right, check, check. Can you hear me? All right. Everybody doing okay? Yeah. Well, doesn't sound like you are. <laughs> but I feel that. What, I, what you're feeling, I feel that too. Okay. Um, we're all tired and exhausted. It's been a long 20 years. And everybody's, half of everyone's on vacation, the other half are just in their brain on vacation all the time. So I'm glad you guys are here, and uh, I hope somehow this will fill you up in some way and help connect you with other people. Let's pray, and then uh, we're going to dive into this. Let me see, did I make myself any notes? Um, oh yeah, uh, we, we always, so the two things I always want to emphasize, we, we always need more help in the children's room, lots of kids. And uh, the kid-to-adult ratio is getting a little out of control, so we need to add more adults to the mix so the, the kids don't become in charge back there. Um, and so if you can help, that would, be, that would be huge. That would be amazing. Also, uh, we are finding ourselves in a bit of a financial slump. It's heading down, and I think we're a few weeks from uh, it becoming a difficult situation. So just throwing that out there. Um, if you've never started giving, but you've been attending, you know, five or ten bucks here and there could really help out if, if we're all sort of thrown in. So that would be uh, a huge help, and uh, we would, all the staff would sleep better at night. So um, let's, uh, let's pray and, uh, and jump into this, shall we? Father, thank you for this place. I pray that uh, you would fill us up. Your people are, your people are tired, and uh, we so desperately want to feel connected to each other and to you. Uh, we so desperately want community, kingdom community, not just the shallow, uh, unknowing what each other does for a living. We want this deep understanding that we are in something together that you are using to restore all things to the glory that they were intended to have. And I pray that we would be able to look into the eyes of each other and see each other and, uh, and love each other and embrace each other in a way that, that fills each other up for the, the, the journey that you have laid out before us so that we can um, become a people whose lives truly are taken apart and put back together around you, around Jesus and the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ and what it means and what it looks like to move through the world in your way. Do this for us. I pray that you would speak through me this morning or help me to remember the things that I've studied and um, I ask that your spirit would join us and... Uh, and, uh, and do its work here. Thank you, Father. In your name, amen. Okay, so I want to start off with sort of a, um, a, a question today, and this is it. What makes a person a Christian? Um, and it seems really simple, uh, but I, 
I don't think a lot of us have thought deeply about it. I don't think a lot of modern evangelicals have really thought deeply about what it actually means to be a Christian, what makes someone a Christian, what we all just kind of, it's this thing we're born into, right? And, and we just kind of say it. And at some point, someone can look back and say, well, I prayed a prayer that day, and so I'm in, I'm good. And, and like, um, it doesn't matter really how I live my life or what I do or what I align myself with. It doesn't matter the journey that I take. Um, I did the thing, and I'm good, uh, and we don't need to worry about this anymore. Um, my life is now mine again. It was before, for a second that I prayed a prayer, and now it's mine again. Um, but what is a Christian? What makes somebody a Christian? And I, th- I think the way modern Christians answer this and the way that the apostles would have answered this are two different things. I mean, is it, is, what makes a person a Christian? Is it an understanding of some specific ideas and saying like, yeah, I, I, those are the things I believe, yes. Or is it an actual embodiment of these things? Is it wearing them and, and displaying them for the world? Is it some moral performance? Is it a baptism? Is it praying a prayer? Is it, like, what is it? It wasn't complicated for the early Christians. It really wasn't. Um, I mean, how often have you heard in the last few years, you can't be a Christian and do that. You can't be a Christian and do that. You can't be a Christian and do that. Um, but when you say this, what you're saying is that, like, this is part of what makes you a Christian is I don't do this. Um, but is that, is that what Jesus was doing? Was he giving you a whole new list of things you have to do to be a Christian on top of the Jewish law? Was he getting rid of that and creating a new life? We, we tend to, our thinking gets very jumbled about this whole thing, but for the early Christians, it was not complicated. Citizenship in the kingdom of God was received when a person received the Holy Spirit. That's how they knew you were a Christian. And how did you know if somebody had the Holy Spirit? The fruits of the Spirit. That's how they knew. Because the Christians in that day were the only people manifesting the presence of Christ in this way, living in this way, gathering in a gathering of people that, that would nowhere else in the Roman Empire or the ancient world gather this group of people from all walks of life coming together as equals. It didn't make any sense. Um, and the fruits of the Spirit were completely on display. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is how you could look at somebody and you could see like, you're a follower of Jesus. I can tell by your life. I can tell by the way you've ordered yourself and the way you gather with the people, the people that you associate yourself with. For Paul and the other apostles, it simply was not enough that they believed and were baptized. Believe it or not, it, it wasn't. And this passage tells us this. Um, it wasn't enough that they were simply believed and, and were baptized. It was the presence of the Spirit that grants the citizenship. I mean, think about it. Apollos, in this passage, Apollos and the other, uh, Apollos was not baptized, but he he still is spoken of as exuding the Spirit. So Apollos believed, but he wasn't baptized, but he's exuding the Spirit. Like everyone can tell, he's a follower of Jesus. Um, These men here, Paul meets up with these guys, and and he can tell they're believers, and the way they're talking, it makes sense, but there's something off, and he's like, whose baptism did you receive? And they say, the baptism of John. Now, this is the second time in the Bible, like we hear the first, first people to say that are in Matthew, and like we hear about this baptism of John, we don't really understand what it was, we don't fully grasp what it meant, and how apparently John had these followers and these disciples that lasted a very long time, and supposedly I have read about how they're still the descendants of these disciples of John, and they're still around today, and it's, it's a, a small sect of religious people um, that have lasted 2,000 years, but we don't fully know in the first century what this meant to be baptized in the baptism of John. It was, it was sort of a, it appears to be coming out of the city, crossing over the River Jordan, and undoing of entering into Canaan, right? Like you're undoing it, you're leaving, and then you're baptized as in, we're going to try this again, and you're going to move back into the city and try to live as God's people again. It's basically admitting that we failed, and we're repenting, and we're going to try again. And so that's what they had been baptized with, but these men had been baptized, but they, and they believed, but they had not received the Spirit. So there's, there's something else, like, like 
The, the, the apostles understood, no, it's the presence of the Spirit with us that makes us one of the citizens of God's people, of his kingdom. And this, this actually seems to be Luke's entire point here in telling this story. Um, look at verse 2. Uh, with Apollos, when, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. And there he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Like, what are you talking about? Um, it appears that the Jewish people, the people of Israel before the time of Christ, they appear to have almost like this Benetarian view of God. It's, it's a little different. Jesus reveals himself. We're going to talk about a little bit about this in a bit. But there seems to be like um, these different ideas about God floating around that, that we're not accustomed to. And these, these men seem to hold some of these interesting views. But for Paul... Uh, baptism was this preparatory thing. It was this repentance where you prepare yourself to receive the Spirit, but baptism was not the main thing that they were after. So, um, and other people look at it and they're like, yeah, but the sign of the Spirit that you need, and people still say this today, I hear this a lot, uh, in order to be a Christian, you have to really display this, the Spirit through the speaking of tongues and the prophesying like these men did here. I mean, look what happens. It says, and when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in tongues and prophesied and they were about 12 men in all. So, there's this, uh, these miraculous signs, and I'm not getting into today like all the details of like tongues and what it is and how it functions, all this stuff. Um, I, I simply want to talk about the presence of the Spirit and like, and how it's manifested and, and, and what it means. Um, because there's a lot who, who do say that since speaking in tongues is a sign of the Spirit, that it's necessary in order to become a Christian. But in fact, speaking in tongues throughout the entire book of Acts and prophesying throughout the book of Acts, it only actually occurs at specific junctions. When something new is happening, like when two separate people are being brought together. That is the only time you really see it. It seems to be like this cross-cultural sort of uh, unifying sort of thing, this action. Um, in, uh, let's look at this. In Acts chapter 2, verse 4, you have the Jewish believers speaking in tongues and prophesying when they receive the Holy Spirit. This is the day of Pentecost, right? And this weird thing happens and they're speaking in tongues. It doesn't make any sense to a lot of people, but everyone standing around can hear their own language coming out of their mouths, and it's this really bizarre moment. And then later in Acts chapter 10, you have the Gentile believers speaking in tongues when they are brought in. So it's an all-Jewish Christian church, and then the Gentiles are suddenly being, God is including a new people that have never been included, and they have to figure this out, and so there's got to be this new way that they include these people. Uh, and when this happens, when they're included, there is speaking in tongues and there's prophesying. And then lastly, this passage right here, when these sort of, um, I guess, edge believers, like they're they're, they're, not, they're not really in. They don't fully grasp, but they're trying to. And so God joins them there, right? So um, there seems to be like this moment where, where the, the ex, you know, I don't know the word I'm looking for, sort of the, the believers on the outside, on the outskirts that didn't really grasp it, but that God has grace and mercy on them and, and brings them in and gives them signs of the Spirit so that they would know because they probably would always have these doubts. And so there, there's these things that God is doing when he brings people together as if to say, like, yes, I'm in this. Because otherwise, whoever, who, who is ever going to join their group together with a group of people they don't like or disagree with? Like, nobody would. And so it's almost like God has to manifest, like, I'm in this. When you come together, I'm in this. And so there seems to be this way that this is manifested uh, in the book of Acts. But it's like every time someone comes to Christ and every time someone receives the Spirit, they don't always speak in tongues or do prof prophecy. So there seems to be like God like putting a stamp of approval on stuff sometimes and then other times he's like, no, they're good. They're in community. It'll be fine. Uh, and so there's, but all of this to say, the center of the whole thing was 
what makes you a Christian in the eyes of the early apostles was the presence of the Spirit. That's what it was. You didn't, you didn't do anything. You didn't specifically pray anything. You didn't, there's no magic words. There's no, like, there's no catechism you need to read and grasp. It's this surrender and receiving the Spirit of God as a guide, as something that brings you together with a people. And it's something that we tend to ignore now. We just completely ignore this because we're children of the Enlightenment. We want to make everything about intellectual ascension. That's what we want to make it about. And the things that we don't understand, the things that we can't control, we tend to push away a little bit and trade for things that we can describe and can control. And these other things, we kind of say, I don't know, I don't know. But we, we don't really want them around because the Spirit of God is wild and confusing sometimes. This is what, how God is. And he surprises us. But what I want to do is I want to look at, at sort of this, this raises a lot of questions about like the role of the Spirit. Like what's the point then? What's the role of the Spirit in our lives? Um, and so I want to look at all of this through a Trinitarian lens and I want to sort of bring up sort of first off the ancient sort of picture of Trinitarian theology, if you will. This is, uh, I mean, it's, it's all in Latin, but let's have a beginner. Deuce, this is the word for God in the middle. You have the Father, Abba, you have the Son, Agnus Dei, and you have the Spirit um, over here, Sanctus. And so then you have, over here you have non est, that means is not, and then est means is. This is Latin. So you, what you have here is this. God is Father. The Father is God, but the Father is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit, but the Son and the Spirit are both God. And this is sort of how it's the best that the, the church fathers could come up with to sort of solidify what Jesus was trying to teach us about God. Um, Trin Trinitarian theology is something that we didn't pick up in the Old Testament. It's something that revealed by Christ. That's why in our um, doctrinal statement, it's, it's the Nicene Creed. That's what it is. The Nicene Creed is a list of all the things that Jesus revealed to us about God. That's what it is. That God is three in one, who the church is, and who we are. These are all the things that Jesus taught us. That's what the Nicene Creed was. Um, and so it's the, it's the earliest agreed upon ecumenical Christian statement of faith. And so we make that ours as well. Um, and so we have this father right at the very top here. We have the father. What's the father's role? Um, I mean, we can pray and trust that, that the hand of God is, is there moving and keeping us. He's the father of creation. He, he is the powerful one, the one that holds it all in his hands, the maker and sustainer of all of it, um, the one who speaks life and matter into existence. And then you have the son over here, um, the one who reveals the full being and the attributes of the father to the people of God. The God of the Old Testament is, uh, the God of the Old Testament one helpful way to understand how to read the Bible is that, that the God of the Old Testament is this perceived God. Um, we don't have all the information. He's this perceived God. But what we have is we have the, the, the prophets, the proclamations of the prophets. We have the stories of, of the Pentateuch. We have the law. We have all these things that we can look at and study God and, and try to grasp, like, what is God like? And that's what the Israelites were doing for 1,800 years. They had this um, constantly sort of unveiling of who God was slowly over time. But when you get to the New Testament, it all changes. Let me show you how the author of Hebrews um, describes the God of the Old Testament. It says, in the past, this is Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1. in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. I, I, I love to pull out the Greek right here. This is one of my favorite passages in, in, in scriptures. Um, it's polymeros kai, polytropos polai. It basically means many, poly is many, many fragments and many fashions. God spoke to us all kinds of ways, different pieces, fragments, fashions, like ways that God would appear, a cloud, a pillar of fire, all these things that God is communicating to us about how we understand who God is, and we've been interpreting. But now, let's go a little farther with the writer of Hebrews. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son 
whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. So, Old Testament, what we have is um, this perceived God. In the New Testament, we have this revealed God, Jesus. So that's the role of Jesus. You have the Father, the the one in power, the creator. And Jesus, the role of Christ is to reveal to us exactly what God is like in person, uh, the image, it, it also revealing to us what a human being is like, what we are supposed to look like, how our lives should be ordered. Um, and then you have the Spirit. What's the Spirit's role? Uh, the, the role of the Spirit is fascinating. In the Old Testament, the role of the Spirit, um, it's, you know, you, you see in Genesis, you have the Spirit hovering over the waters, ready to part the waters, and, and it's chaos, and it's a mess, like we talked about last week. And you, he parts the waters and, and creates, brings land and creates life that will flourish and reproduce. He's doing something that is alive and organic and moving and growing. It's, it's this very much this wild, alive thing. Um, making space to work and planting the seeds of life that will flourish. It's a spirit who comes over the kings and gives them wisdom to make difficult decisions to lead God's people in the place, sort of in God's place, um, under God, over the people. It's the spirit whom Jesus followed during his ministry. Every time you see Jesus going everywhere, anywhere, it starts off with the, spirit, with the spirit of God led Jesus into the desert. The spirit of God led Jesus to Jerusalem. It's always Jesus is showing us what it means to be a human, to be led by God. You listen to the Spirit. You're waking up, you're praying, you're in communion with God, and you follow the Spirit. And this is what Jesus is doing. And the reason all of these writings are kept is so that we could know what we are to do. This is how we are to be as well. And so one of the, there are many roles of the Spirit in the Old Testament, wisdom, um, uh, breathing life, um, all of that. In the New Testament, especially in Acts, the Spirit's role begins to change. And it, the Spirit interacts with humanity in this whole new way that had never happened previously. And so I want to talk about that. First off, before we talk about like the Spirit's role, we have to talk about the law. The Spirit's role today can't be understood apart from understanding the law in the Old Testament and, and the point of the law. So essential, I want to start with this when I talk about the law. Central to being God's people was to be what's called a holy people. Holy is this word, uh, this Greek word hagios, which means difference. It means weird. It means not like everything else. Um, I saw this picture yesterday. I think it was on Reddit. It was a family picture, and this, you know, looked like a suburban, nice, adorable family, sweaters, and mom and dad, and the kids, and there's this one kid, the son, and he's wearing all black and, like, chains and, like, giant black pants, and, like, he's got an over and he's guy liner, and he's just, like, staring at the camera. I'm like, he's holy. He's different and separate. He's weird. This is, this is Israel, and this is the rest of the world, right? Like, Israel was punk rock. They were doing their own thing. They were different, right? Like, and everyone thought they were weird, and they're like, that's just my way. It's, it's how. It is the, it is the way. Um, and it, this is what they're doing. So they were called to be this wholly different people. And you have these passages throughout the text reminding them, hey, you're not supposed to look like everyone else. You're supposed to be different. So you have Proverbs 4.18, the path of the righteous is like the morning sun, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. When you go outside, people will notice. You will shine like the sun. Um, We can go a little farther with this. Uh, In um, Leviticus chapter 11, consecrate yourselves, be holy because I am holy. The reason they're supposed to be weird and different and gothed out in the family portrait is because 
This is how God is? Like, this is because God is holy. Like, God looks different from every other authority in the world. God is supposed to stand out and look different. He's not trying to destroy his enemies. He loves them. He's, everything that God does is different. Um, and so God's people should be different as well. So God gives them laws that make them weird to everyone else in the world. They eat different. They wear different clothes. They have different sort of rhythms throughout the day. And the reason they are to do this is so that people will look at them and say, huh, that's weird. That's different. Nobody else is doing that. What does this mean? And it's to invite you into, into like wonder about these people, and then they tell you about their God. Um, it, it was how they existed. It was their way of, of living. And so by following the law, I mean, Psalm 119 reminds people, like, follow the law. It says this over and over and over. Um, Psalm 1, 2 talks about how they learn about God by meditating on the law. Who sits and, like, flips through America's penal code and goes through and be like, let me learn about America from its laws. You actually can learn a lot from anywhere and any leader in any country by studying their laws. And the people of God were encouraged to study the law so that you could learn about who God is and what God wants. How could this be interpreted? What is God actually doing with all these laws? Is there a cohesive message? Yes, there is. Death and disease and darkness will always be pushed away and goodness and light and love will always be brought in. That is in short, that's the TLDR like of, of the text of the law. That's what it is. Um, and so, interestingly, as you move forward, there begins, to be, there begins to be these prophets who have this message. They're like, by the way, it's not always going to be like this. You're not always going to have the law, the piece of paper. You're not always going to have that. You have, you have men like Jeremiah who stands up and says, it says, he has the message of God. He says, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. That God's apparently going to come closer and do more closer in a way that we never imagined before. He's going to take the law from paper and put it on our hearts. How does how does that happen? Um, and so the intention of God has always been to give humanity the law in this whole new way. And this whole new way shows up at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Um, the wind of God rips through this building. Jesus is dead. He's, he's, he's buried and he's, and he's risen. And, and two weeks have gone by and he's ascended. And they don't know what to do. And they're gathering and praying. And suddenly there is this huge wind that rips through the place and they don't understand it and apparently there's I don't know what whatever tongues of fire means it's, it's like this picture of like flames above their heads like appeared above their heads and they're speaking in tongues in other words the spirit did something crazy so that everyone would look and everyone would notice and then they spoke in tongues and they prophesied and from this moment on the way they understand the law changes the early Christians from that moment on never picked up the law again as something that they should follow from this point forward they are following the spirit of God and there is no written text by which they look at and say, well, it says right here, I got to do this, so I got to do this. No, they're following the Spirit. And they trust the Spirit to make them like Christ. And so they gather and they ask the Spirit to be present with them. Um, and this means that the same Spirit that guided Jesus through his ministry is now guiding the church because the church is supposed to do literally what Jesus was doing. This is our role in the world. And so, in, including right up, to the, right up to pouring ourselves out for the healing of the world around us. Christians should always be on, on, on the front of like, how can we give sacrificially? What, what can we do in our lives to live in a sacrificial way so that others may know freedom in life? Um, and this is what the Christians are doing because this is what Jesus was doing and this is what the Spirit is calling them to do. So this means that the same Spirit guiding Jesus was guiding his church um, 
through their ministry as well, they no longer required these paper laws that prescribed in great detail the rules of worship, the sacrifices to be offered, the prayers which must be prayed, and the actions that must be present if a holy life is to be attained. A holy life now no longer looked like weird hair and clothing and, and weird dietary restrictions. It now looked like a people who look like Jesus, bearing the fruits of the Spirit, who embody love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, who embody all of these things. And in that world, this is what holiness looked like. It was, it was actually weird to see people like this, but this is who they were. I would still argue when you actually see this in real life, it is weird. It is different. Someone who really understands and has ordered their life around the things of Christ, you can see it. You don't even need to wonder about it. You don't even need to debate about it. You don't need to ask their opinion on social issues or, or doctrine or theology. You can look at them and see that they have been formed to Christ. And so from this point forward, the church sets out to cultivate their ability to hear God. So let me do one of my terrible drawings and show you just one last illustration of how this works. So from Genesis to the Gospels, this is, this is the Bible, all right? Genesis, the Gospels, uh, you got Acts. If you're not familiar with the Gospels, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's four stories from, it's the same story from four different perspectives written in different times for different reasons, but it's the story of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. So Genesis to, to, to the Gospels, from this point, this is, they followed the written law, the Torah. This is how they lived. Um, but with the coming of the Spirit in Acts, everything changed and they began to follow the Spirit of God. And so everything you're reading from the book of Acts forward are things that the followers of Jesus, the apostles, discerned about what they should do in each and every situation. And these things are contextual. In other words, they're different for every city. You will see them sometimes doing one thing in one city and not doing that in another city, but doing something completely different as the Spirit of God leads them to do these things. It's almost like there's no rules and there's no law. They're just following and doing exactly what the Spirit of God guides them to do, which in our mind sounds incredibly dangerous. And of course it is. Um, it's dangerous what following the Spirit, and I mean, a lot of people are, think that's dangerous because they think everyone's going to use it for their own advantage and run off and do whatever they want to do. Um, we'll talk about that. Um, but following the Spirit itself is a wild, dangerous thing to do. It makes you do drastic things in your life and make drastic changes. Um, it, uh, it, will, it will oftentimes cost you relationships. It will cost you jobs. It will cost you money. Um, because it's holy and it's different. So the process of discernment that, that they had was really not complicated, and we see it a lot. They gathered. You can see it in Acts chapter 13 where they, they gather in this space. They're trying to figure out what to do. They need more disciples to send and this and that. And they gather, and they fast, and they pray, uh, and they worship, and they submit to each other, and they listen to the Spirit of God amongst them, and they wait for the Spirit to speak, and the Spirit does speak. And in this passage, the Spirit directs them. He says, set apart for me. Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And, said, and, and, and they discerned the Spirit's movement to call these two to do this work. And they discerned this together. Um, and it's a really fascinating thing. It's not something that we ever ponder today, although we've talked a lot about it in the last couple of years. Two chapters later in Acts chapter 15, we see again, they're doing the same thing because now there's these Gentiles that want to come into the church like we talked about. And their question is like, how do we bring these Gentiles in because they don't live up to all of our cultural ways. They, they, they don't live by the Mosaic laws, the Torah. They don't, they're not circumcised. They, have, they don't eat our weird diet, and, and they don't keep the Sabbath. What do we do? And they gather, and they fast, and they worship, and they pray, 
And they ask the Spirit of God to guide them, and they submit to each other, and they listen to each other, speak from the heart about what God is doing, and they ask the question, what is God doing? Why is God bringing these people in, and how are we supposed to include them in this thing that we've been doing for a while now? And the Spirit of God is there and present and brings them in together, and there's this sign that, like, yes, I'm in this. There's tongues and there's prophecy, and it's all there. And God includes them. But it it requires a people willing to gather and ask God to be present and listening. It does not require a people gathering with all their notes and and making theological arguments about why or why not or this. And that's not what they were doing at all. That's what we do as people 2,000 years later who have been trying since the very beginning. Once the spirit was free from the paper, we've been trying to get him back on there because we really need the spirit back on the paper because it's confusing. If the Spirit of God would just write it all down for us and give us new laws. I want a new law. That's what I want. But we don't get that. We have to have a relationship. We have to have this listening. We have to have this presence. We have to invite God to be present with us. And it's hard and it's difficult. We have to look each other in the eye who we disagree with. And we have to have conversations. And ask God. We have to submit to each other. This is all part of the Spirit's guiding and and, and discernment. And in Acts chapter 15, especially verse 12, we can see the apostles and the church leaders gathering in this way. And what they do is they finally come to this decision. And they're not positive on it, but they're pretty sure this is what they should do. And they know God's grace is with them because they're trying to be Christ-like and trying to do the right thing. And they write this letter, starting in verse 28. In the letter, a little later on in the letter, it starts like this. It says, It seems good to, to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything. He's talking to the Gentiles coming in. Um, anything beyond the following requirements, that you are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. And you will do well to avoid these things. So he says, um, like, it's, it's funny because if you, if you look at how they present this, these ideas, there's no, there's no arrogance. It, we're pretty sure this is what God is doing. And there's this air of humility. And there's this air of, like, graciousness with each other, understanding that there is a lot of mystery in what God is doing, but there also must be faith and there must be trust. And we must follow Jesus into the difficult things, the hard things to do. Um, and I mean, if we're here, we need to have this conversation about, um, about hierarchy, about power struggles. Because, I mean, we were raised in America, most of you in this room, Americans through and through, and, and so you have this idea that like, the best way is democracy. And in earthly realms, it does seem the best way is democracy. Um, but when you actually study the church, it's interesting because the church is not a democracy. The church is something different altogether because in a democracy, everyone is individually voting for what they want, which is the very opposite of what we do in the church. We throw off what we want and we try to follow what God wants and make our wants submissive and subordinate to God's desires for us. And so theologians, instead of describing the church as a democracy, tend to describe it as a, uh, um, as a pneumatocracy. Pneuma is the word for spirit. Like, no, it's led by the spirit. It's not led by us. We have a hand in it, and we gather, and we listen. And it's interesting because, like, um, a lot of Christians who desire that the church has become more democratic often assume that God votes with the majority. But if you actually read the Bible, what you tend to see is God is almost always on the side of the minority, not the majority. And so oftentimes when churches try to practice democracy, they end up voting against Jesus. Jesus ends up on the other side being like, I lost again. One day, 
one day my group is going to be in the majority in the church. And this is what he's working towards. Like, and so we tend to assume that like, God is on our side and God thinks the way that we do. But when we gather in this way and we submit to each other and we listen, what we find is God opens us up to do something different and, and lead us in a way that we've always needed but never understood. Um, and so it's funny because I think a lot, of, a lot of pastors and elder boards in America prefer dictatorships and republics to anything else. Uh, and the people for democracies, everyone wants, they're like, they're handed it and say, no, this is what we're going to do. What the text requires, what the early church required was all of us collectively submitting to the Spirit. We all have a role to play. We all have work to do in the kingdom. But we submit to each other and we follow the Spirit. And it's really hard to wrap our minds around. Um, and there's no room for arrogance. And there's no room for this certainty. There's only ever space for listening and asking what God is doing. The people of God always understood that whatever they bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever they loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Uh, they understood, Matthew 18, that where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. They understood that when they do this, they trust and they invite they, and, and they put themselves aside and they submit. That's why fasting is important because fasting tunes that sort of gauge in your soul to like throw off your own desires and, and, and open yourself up for, for the desires of the divine. And this is what fasting does. And that's why they fast before they gather in this way. And they trusted when they do this. That when they, move, when, they, when they can move forward in humble faith and not arrogant legalism, when they can move forward in this way, that God can be present and lead them. And once you realize that this is what the first generations of Christians are doing, you begin to read the Bible differently. You begin to see that from the book of Acts forward, everything the people are doing, they don't have a book that they're following. I mean, the, 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 the text wasn't fully compiled until like the early to mid fourth century. All they had was the Spirit for 336 years or so. This is all they had. And this is how they followed Christ. And you have been invited into this as well. And we can study the text and we can understand how they did this and we should take part in that. Um, and once you realize that this is what the first generation of Christians are doing, you begin to read the Bible differently. You begin to notice that they had different rules for different cities and their rules weren't universal, but they based them upon what that specific city was doing, what God was doing there and how they should respond to it in that moment. This is what's called contextual theology. You enter into a place, missionaries do this, and a lot of, uh, most American Christians are completely oblivious to how contextual theology works because our entire country is by and large, it feels kind of the homogenous and the same. But in general, like, Contextual theology is what we do when we go somewhere else where, where we don't understand what is happening. We don't understand the culture and we gather and we listen to the people and we sit and we say, what does it mean to be Christ-like in this scenario? This is why when Paul goes into this city of Ephesus that he's in right now, um, they end up making a rule that like, okay, in this city, this is where you get the famous passages from, from Second, Second Timothy chapter, I'm sorry, First Timothy chapter two, where Paul's like, um, no, we're not gonna let, women be in charge in this particular church. This is not what we're going to do. But then you see him sending women to the cities of Rome and women leading in Philippi. And you, know, you have the writings of the early church that mentions all these women who were leading in the early church. So why do, why do we have like two or three passages here where they're like, no, the women can't lead here. It's contextual theology. What does it mean to be Christ-like here? Well, it might mean that like this thing that God gives to us that we're allowed to do, that we, that we make that subordinate to the mission of God. Yes, I have my privileges and my rights. And like Jesus, I'm willing to put those aside so that I can reach this people in a Christ-like way. This is what they're doing. And there's arguments in the text all over the place about 
Do we do this? Do we do this? And oftentimes the Spirit's like, yes. And oftentimes it's like, no. And it's the same thing. And so we have to pay attention to like, they're not just making a bunch of rules and going out and doing these rules everywhere. They're, they're asking questions of the Spirit. They're, they're, they're following and listening and they're being guided. And what they care about, they're not asking what's right, what's wrong. What they're asking is, what does it mean to be Christ-like here? What does it mean? I mean, you have passages where Paul kind of lays it out on the table for him. Like for, uh, 1 Corinthians 6, he says, all things are lawful for me. They really are. Like, as a Christian, the law is not there. As a Jewish Christian, as a follower of Christ, all things, I can literally do whatever I want, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. And so what questions were they asking? If you're allowed to do anything, what do you do? What does it mean to have freedom in Christ? Well, it's basically gathering and saying, of course we can do that if we really would, would like to, but it, it, it would go against the mission of God. It, would, it wouldn't be Christ-like. It's not, it's not how Jesus would present himself to these people. And so I cannot be this way. I cannot do this. I cannot act in this way. Their, their biggest question was not, what am I allowed to do? It's, okay, if I enter into this space, what do I, what of myself do I need to put aside so that I can serve these people and bring them into the kingdom so that we can all grow together in the same direction? And I've had to do this. And it's not easy. And what you would rather do, I mean, I've been raised as an American to demand my way, my rights, my votes, my power, and, and I, I won't give it up for anybody. But as I've come to study Christ, I've come to see that like that is not the posture. That is not the posture of the early church. It's not the posture of, of Jesus. It was always, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But if this is what I must do, give me the strength to do it. Um, there are so many ways that we stifle the Spirit of God, that we want nothing to do with the Spirit of God. I don't even know if we would know what to do if the Spirit showed up one day and just was present in a way that we've never allowed the Spirit to be present before. Um, a lot of evangelical Christians today have this really super lazy way of reading the work of the apostles. They read, they read uh, a, a, a verse or a comment from Paul to another person in his day, in his own day, and they say, see, Paul said this. That means it equally applies to the church in Tampa in the 21st century as it did to them there. But Paul never would have intended for you to do this. Paul never expected that any of us 2,000 years later would be reading his letters and trying to do this. He was literally writing a contextual letter to a contextual place and a people, and the Spirit was in that, and the Spirit was part of that. And what we need to be asking is, why? What was so important that this needed to be this way in this city? And then we, we look at these things, and we compare them with the world that we're in. We're like, oh, I can see that here. And so like Paul's example, this is how I should order my life. This is what I should give up so that I can enter into community with these people. That's always been the question. What are you willing to give up to stay and remain in community with people on the other side? What are you willing to give up? And so the question that we should ask is, 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 is why did Paul say this? In what ways is this Christ-like for that context? What parallels are there for me between us and them? And it's, again, it's not about what's right or wrong. It's about what is Christ-like. Because the New Testament, starting at the book of Acts, is this masterclass on people learning to follow the Spirit and not the law. And so this week, when you read the text, I want you to look for that. Look for the ways that the people oftentimes are unsure, and so they're leaning on the Spirit and the body of Christ. They're gathering in community, and they're laying it out there and saying, I don't know what to do. By the way, that's a very powerful phrase. 
And it's, it's a phrase we don't say enough. I don't know. I don't know. And I, and I gathered people, and maybe none of you know, but the Spirit of God knows, and so I need you to help listen and discern and submit to each other and listen to each other talk and speak into each other's lives and minister to each other in this way. This is why we encourage people to do the house churches. We're having a, a gathering at my house tonight of all the house church leaders and the hosts, and, and we're gonna um, talk about this, and I, I encourage you. Um, you should regularly be in communion with people. You should regularly be around the table with other Christians, listening, eating, looking each other in the eye, listening to each other talk about what's going on in each other's lives and listening deeply for what God is doing and speaking into it, taking a part in what God is doing in each other's lives. You should regularly be sitting at your table sharing a meal with people, even taking communion if you need. I would say we all need. It's been so long since we've been able to take communion as a, as a church. I think that right there is, is one of the main, um, one of the main ways to, to fix division anywhere. I disagree with you, but hey, we've got the body and the blood of Christ broken and poured out for each of us. Before we talk, why don't we do this and remind ourselves of what gathers, what actually brings us together. If you line up all these Christians from all walks of life, whom I, a lot of whom I maybe look at and be like, I, I disagree with your entire theological structure and all this stuff, but if you put, if you gather us all together and you put communion in the middle of us, we will all step forward and take it. We understand what it means. And it will recenter us and remind us of what it is, what our role is in the lives of each other. To be broken and poured out for the salvation and the healing of this person across the table from me. You guys, we're living in a time when the work of the Spirit has been mostly ignored, covered up, or looked at with distrust. We tend to talk about the Holy Trinity as if it's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Bible. The Spirit has no place in the whole thing. We don't care. I don't want to know what the Spirit has to say. I've got the Bible. I'm just going to read this and do what it says. And the Spirit the whole time is like, there's so much more than this. I'm present with you. I have words for you now. That will, that will open up this text in ways that you will finally understand why they were so passionate about this. I brought people into your life who you have a really hard time with so that you could be transformed, so that you could sit with them and be transformed by your relationship with them. Instead of running away and trying to find your ways to disconnect, move closer. This is what Christ was doing. The Spirit is our guide, our salvation, our, our sanctifier. He's the one who cultivates not only the fruits of the Spirit, but new life within us. And this is why the first thing Paul asked when he met these people in Ephesus was, have you received the Spirit? Because he could, there seemed to be something that he could sense, that he could see, some presence, something within him that was calling out and be like, the work here's not done. And he obviously was spending time with them, listening to him to figure this out. But that's the work of the Spirit. This is how you know if somebody is a Christian. This is what makes us a Christian, the presence of the Spirit in our lives. And how do you know? How does it manifest? The fruits of the Spirit hanging all over your tree. This is what it looks like. And so we need to throw all these other measuring sticks away, all these other lenses and ideologies and political things. Just throw it all away. Look at people. And you can, you can tell if the Spirit of God is present in their lives because the way they move through the world, because they look like Jesus. Draw near. Learn from them. Learn from those people. Ask them how they were able to free themselves from all the things that enslave you. Invite them over for dinner. Listen. Talk to them. Begin to speak into each other's lives in this way. We need less empty tables. We really, really do. And we need more invitations to the Spirit of God to be present with us. So that's my encouragement for you um, today. There's a bunch more, but 
I should land the plane because we're all hungry. And so I'll pray. Father, thank you for this place and these people. I ask that you would teach us to discern your presence. Teach us that we don't need to look like up some hierarchy and ask the people at the top, what do I, uh, remind us that you are present, that we can ask you. How do we respond? We can gather with our brothers and sisters and ask very heavy, important questions about what it means to be a separate people. In here, this is the, this is the kingdom of God. And what does it mean for the kingdom of God, for the people, the citizens of the kingdom of God to exit these doors into America? How do we live in a way where they say, you're not really one of us, are you? No, we're citizens of a separate kingdom. I pray that you would do this work in us somehow. Fill us with joy, please. Give us happiness and joy and, and mercy and goodness and humility. Help us to see each other. Thank you, Father. All of this. In your name, amen. Would you guys stand with me and we can close out today with the Lord's Prayer. Say it nice and loud with me. Let's go. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Have the greatest Sunday of your life. Love you all. Grace and peace.